egos or status. I don't know if anyone here has an ego. You want to raise your hand and say, well, no, I don't even know how to spell that. I don't know what that is. Um, well, actually, it happens to be a pretty common problem. I think we all can look at ourselves in the mirror and find our own vanities pretty quickly. Um, here's Jesus addressing that very issue with his disciples. It says this, Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Now who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never find salvation. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be thrown into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or foot cause you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life, life, crippled or lame, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father, who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's not the will of my Father in heaven that any of his little ones, after all, were invited to call God Father. And by calling him that, we've already said a, a bunch about ourselves, that if he's our Father, then but that would, I guess, make us his children. Particularly here, Jesus goes out of his way to say, little children. Just so we don't get too full of ourselves in our childhood. Because the human heart's possible <laughs> to even do that. That we are even little children. And God actually is our great father. See, it's so relevant that the disciples would ask Jesus this question because how many times a day, how many times a week would you be even aware to know that your heart has moved or had motions in this same direction? You, know, you don't compare yourself uh, to governors or presidents and 
but you will compare yourself to the guy sitting in the cubicle next to you or your neighbor who is in the same socioeconomic status as you. And that's where the temptation really is. That we want to try to find our identity. Almost a natural inclination, almost a need to be acknowledged, to want to know who is greater. What name can I have for myself? What legacy or title can I attain? And that's not a bad thing, actually. The whole point of the gospel is that. That Jesus Christ would give us a new name, a new identity, right? Because we were made for glory. That we were actually given the title image bearers of God. The problem is that glory and that honor and that dignity has been ripped from us. That we were found to be naked in the garden and shameful. And we have always been trying to sew fig leaves together to try to cover our shame. And we call them titles and paychecks and degrees and cars and homes. But it's nothing different. That we're always trying to make something for ourselves so that we would be honorable and dignified. It's not a bad thing. Galatians 4 actually says this, where Paul said, it's always good to be made much of, but for a good purpose. See, the nature of the question, the question the disciples bring to Jesus is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're not really comparing themselves to Herod, who was actually at the time, his title was Herod the Great, who was the king of the region in which they lived, as they're just fishermen. I can't really compare myself to the king. He's already, I know, greater than me. But Jesus among us, guys, here, the 12 disciples who are vying for your attention to see who can jockey for first spot in our little world, well, that is the competition. There's the real temptation. And so they come to Jesus and ask that very thing. And actually, the whole point of uh, the gospel with this has been leading to this question. See, a few chapters ago, in Matthew 10, we find a list of the disciples laid out. The first one on the list is Peter. He's always, almost all, all the times, I think one place in the Bible, he's actually not listed as the first when the 12 apostles are listed. So he seems to have a greater position or authority. Later on in Matthew 16, it's Peter who sees Jesus and says, you are Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus responds and says, greater you, Peter, and upon this rock, your confession of me, you being the rock, I'll build this church. Well, it seems like Peter's a pretty big deal. It goes on, the very next chapter, Jesus takes only three of his 12 disciples up a mountain. And they're able to see him in his glory. He was transfigured before him. Where were the others? It seems like there's a pecking order. It seems like there are some disciples that are closer to Jesus and have greater honor or, or privilege. And right before this question, the last thing that happened was they were presumably at G, uh, Peter's house in Capernaum and people came looking for a temple tax. And Jesus responded by saying, here, have this silver coin. This is a tax for me and for Peter. That is, Jesus didn't offer the tax for his other 11 disciples. So now, it's gotten to the point, uh, it's become evident enough within the group, you would say, that the question has to be asked. So how does this work, Jesus? Because we understand how the world works. That you have to scratch someone's back to get yours 
scratch. You have to do this to get ahead. You have to, what's your system, Jesus? How, how can I also go up to the mountain with you? How could you perhaps offer your tax for me? How can I be on the inner circle? How can I be one of the greater ones in the kingdom? That's the question. See, all those things that I said about the disciples were true. But the beauty of what makes the gospel a real gospel is Jesus' answer to them at this moment. Because he pauses the whole charade and says, no, no, you've misunderstood me. Whatever the mountain was, however I paid Peter's tax, whatever this system is you're thinking about how there's a nepotism or a priority among us, I'm going to stop that now. And he reorients them all to say, that is not how my kingdom works. It's a beautiful answer. His answer, before even saying a word, I just wish you could have walked with him. And eventually the day will be, but he doesn't even answer them. He just calls a child. He calls a child over, and it says he called a child and placed that child in the midst of them. Then he began to talk. I love that. Because you know what that says to me? It says particularly the image of what we just heard. Imagine a child, a small child, being called around a group of a dozen, if not more, adult men. That are not their father or their uncle or someone they might know. You know how that interaction plays out. Child walks over, big eyes, little steps, looks at the ground, counts their toes a few times. All these men just staring at him or her. See, it's even a thing when children in the church are becoming members. When they're becoming communicant members, maybe like 10 or 11 or 12, we say, you're going to have to meet with the elders. We want to hear about your faith in Christ, how you believe upon the Lord. They're petrified of that. They're absolutely petrified to sit in a room with a bunch of other weird, strange, uh, balding or gray men. <laughs> and in normal standards, it's not very intimidating. But you see, for a small child, it is. It's very scary. Do you see the image of what Jesus has just done? He made a child stand in front of them all and do what children do. And he said, that should be you. That should be you. Don't ask me these questions. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Look at how this child won't make eye contact with you. Look at how this child is completely aware of the difference between you and him. And this whole big scary world of adults. For the world is the world of adults. And every day a child lives with that and knows that. That everything points to their little status and their insignificance. And then Jesus simply said, don't ever lose that. You can't grow out of that. In fact, if you think you've grown out of that, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. The reason he brings this comparison out is because wherever Jesus brings out parables, it's not as though every point of the parable matches on perfectly. 
Right? You, you can't be saying, oh, be like a child, therefore I'll be immature and cry all day. No, no that's, you could, but that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, maybe you do. But the reality is that's not the point, right? There's a lot of virtues of childhood that we do not want to imitate. Praise God for that. But there's one aspect. See, there's only one real thing that Jesus is pointing at. And he gets to it in the verse where he says, in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like a child be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, there's only really one point of contact. There's only really one point of analogy in which he's trying to point it out. Saying, yes, don't be childlike in the ability that you can't tie your shoes and you can't tell time. You want to grow out of that. But never, never outgrow your humility in Christ. Never. If you don't have that, you have nothing. Whoever, and it's not a passive thing, it's active. Whoever humbles himself, that is, debase yourself, cut down your feet, lower your foundation, have nothing to stand on and fall on your knees. You must humble yourself, bring your soul low. People have often said, what really is the definition of humility? It is nothing more than an accurate estimation of your own value. That's humility. That you actually see yourself for who you really are and the world for the way it really is. It's nothing more than to behold God. Humble yourself to be like a child. And then he says, then therefore there, you'll be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But then the logic would play out, well, if we're all going to be the littlest in the kingdom of heaven, then the littlest is the greatest and the greatest is the littlest. And Jesus is saying, yes, that's the point. Quit worrying about that. That if the littlest is the greatest and the greatest really isn't the greatest, yes, that's the point. Quit worrying about that. See, this humility, this status of being like a child, People try to say it's like, you know, children are really humble and meek and mild. They're really not. Like, let's be, the funniest part about all that is when people take, take Jesus' words here and say, yes, those children, you know them. They're always being, you know, selfless and humble about everything and, and, and considering others all the time. And, and it's, then they just take that verse and run with it. And you're like, um, I think we all need to spend some more time around kids. <laughs> that's not how that works. I mean, they're just little versions of us. They have hearts just like us. So, so it's not like there's a, a moral virtue to children as though children can't be what we are just with bigger, bigger budgets and bigger lusts for idolatry. Kids are the same thing, just with less ability to actualize that. See, the difference is children particularly are a lower status. Right? They live in a world of adults. No one is calling them for advice. They're smaller, they're weaker, they're insignificant, they have no influence as far as the world system is concerned, as far as this present reality we live in is concerned. Children have nothing to offer by their status, right? That's the point. There is a lowering of their own ability because they are in constant need of two particular things. They always need instruction and they always need protection. They are absolute fools. Like, that's why you literally put covers on the electrical outlets, right? That's why they have to be penned in. That's why we have a nursery full of toys with two adults and stickers on their back. They're, they're like, just so foolish. 
But see, if you can't understand that about yourself, you'll never hear the gospel. Because the gospel, if you think you're an adult, if you think you've grown up, you will go to hell. Jesus is simply going to speak about hell. If you think you're wise, and Jesus says you're an idiot, someone's going to have to change their mind, and we're not going to be friends. And I promise you, Jesus will not change his mind. We must see ourselves as fools. We must see ourselves as children. And also not strong, weak, constant need of help, constant need of protection. See, this humility of status is the whole point of how James points out in his letter to the church. He says, if you have a bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not a wisdom that is from above, right? You're talking about trying to get to the kingdom of heaven. Well, this wisdom will not get you there. This wisdom is not from above. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's actually demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition are, there is always disorder and every vile practice. Selfish ambition. He goes on in James 4 to say, But God gives greater grace, for he is opposed to the proud. That is, when people say, I don't really notice God in my life. I don't really see him anywhere. I don't uh, have a particular ability to hear the gospel or read the Bible. It's like, yes, humble yourself. Approach the Lord as though you were a child and you need to be held line by line. One, two, three, A, B, C. Approach the Lord as if you know nothing. Then God won't oppose you anymore. The Holy Spirit will open up your mind. He'll give you truth. Because opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, draw near to God this way, if you do it this way, humbly. And the promise, of course, is God will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinners, he says, and then purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the problem of selfish ambition. It's not wrong to be ambitious. It's not wrong to want more, better, greater. That's fine. A meritocracy, capitalistic society... Go for it. Work real hard. There's a reason Amazon's so incredibly successful, because it's very good at serving people, you see. And that's the point. The title, the privilege, the honor, for what purpose? Serve God, love Him, and love everybody. Maybe God will give you great titles, great honor, great privilege. But it would be a curse if you didn't have the heart to handle it. It would be a curse to be given those things and to love those things in themselves. And to not see them as tools to give God glory and honor and to serve and love everybody you meet in this life. See, that is the difference between ambition and selfish ambition. That is the difference between growing up as an adult and trying to get yours or living like a child and realizing nothing's mine. So I don't really care. See, that's the freedom of being children of God. There's a freedom to being a child of God, to realizing yourself in the reality that you actually really don't own anything, that God really is your father. Yes, your money, your paycheck, your house, your children, and your very life are not yours. To realize that is to realize then you are a child of God, and you are free to actually own things without them owning you. This is why without this you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying. 
Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. He goes on to say these little ones in verse 6 are those who believe in me. So he says it's such a child, not just children, but people who are like these children. That is, who particularly? Those who believe in me. So from then on, from verse 6, he uses nothing, nothing more than the phrase little children to be the same as disciple or believer or Christian. Therefore, if you are claiming to follow Jesus, you must understand that on your name tag, rather on your back so you can't pull it off because you're a little child, and that's how we do it in the nursery, on your back it says, little child. And you wear that as a badge of honor. You wear that as the greatest title you could ever have. Everything this world could offer you would do nothing more than a handwritten note from your father saying, you are my little child, and I'm watching you. I'm going to keep you safe. No title in the world could give you that. In fact, you could give your whole soul for the world and have nothing in return. And so, of course, the disciples, their problem is they are approaching Jesus as he is just starting something else in the world. He's the CEO and he needs some people by his side. Who gets to be the best? Not at all. See, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian church and said, to them as they've converted and come to Jesus Christ. Consider your calling, Corinthians. Not many of you were wise according to this world. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things in this world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things in this world to shame the strong. He chose the low and despised things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That's God's whole purpose for the gospel, for the church, for his kingdom. To take all the wisdom and the power and the realities of this present evil age and to flip it on its head, turn it upside down for his own glory so that you would take all things that are and call them not and take all things that are not and call them are and say all the little ones will inherit the earth, the meek and the mild will inherit the earth, the pure in heart will see God. All this is flipped around. So that the actual gospel is, without being like this, you cannot live in the age to come. Because the age to come functions on this reality. Functions on this principle of humility between you and the Lord. See, there was a very famous uh, woman. Selena Hastings was her name. Uh, She lived in the 1700s. And you're going to say, well, I never heard about her. And that's the point, actually. Famous people in the 1700s are still dead people you don't know about. So why why try to be the greatest? Because no one else cares. But she was great. She was wonderful. She was a godly woman. She was uh, the Countess of Haddington in London. A countess in the 1700s. She had a lot of land and a lot of money and a lot of property. She had a lot of revenue. And you ever wonder with yourself, what would I do if I had a tremendous amount of wealth? Would I manage it well? Would I indulge in myself? She did it well. She built over 60 chapels. She built a hospital. She built a college. She trained ministers for the gospel. She lived in a point in human history which is called the Great Awakening, the 18th century. 
she was in close communication with John Wesley, George Whitfield, these preachers and evangelists that went through all of England and America, bringing a tremendous revival. She was behind the scenes with all the dollar bills. She was behind the scenes making it all happen. One time she approached John Wesley and said, I owe my salvation to the letter M. And he said, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, reading that passage from 1 Corinthians, it says, fortunately for me, not any of you were noble, not any of you were wise, but it says, not many of you were noble, not many of you were wise, for she is noble. But that nobility was used for the glory of God. The difference between many and any. That she was the one who could manage her wealth and her power and her influence toward the glory of God for the kingdom. She could have that and let it not corrupt her soul. That she could still always remain a child. Still always remain and remember that everything she has is actually her father's. She was saved by the letter M. And shortly after this, Jesus is going to encounter a man called a rich young ruler. This rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Now, now, good teacher, what should I do to inherit or have or take hold of? Eternal life is the word. Life without ending. Life that continues. Life in its fullness. How can I have that? And Jesus responds to this rich. He's young. He's not a child, but he's definitely not an old man, but he's a ruler. He's inherited a tremendous amount of wealth just by the virtue of his birth. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, all you have to do is obey the commandments. Do not steal, do not kill, do not lie. He said, of course, then I've, I've done this. And Jesus said, only one more thing you need to be perfect. Take everything you have and sell it. And give it to the poor. Told that the man went away sad because he had great possessions. And then Jesus said, It is very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. This ruler was looking for eternal life. And the disciples are asking, how can I get into heaven? Not just really get into heaven, the, the kingdom of heaven. But he says, who can be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That is, they're assuming already, I'm going to get into the kingdom of heaven. I just want to be on the top seat. Jesus pauses all that to say, stop thinking this way. Be happy if you could even get in. And then instead of talking about eternal life, he changes the whole discussion and talks about eternal destruction. This very serious warning of worldly temptations. Whoever causes one of these little ones, his little ones who believe in him to sin. That is, sin, particularly the word there, is to stumble. In the context, most likely, to stumble, to fall away. To stumble, to not get back up. Not a stumble where you fall and hit your knee and wipe off the scratch. This is a stumble where you fall and never follow Jesus again. If you cause one of my little ones to stumble, he says... It would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and for you be drowned in the sea. Woe to the world we live in, for temptations to sin are many. 
And it is necessary, he says, that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom they come. We live in a world that is riddled with temptations that are antithetical to the kingdom of God. Riddled with temptations are intended to pull your heart in other directions that are not Christ. And if they pull and they continue to pull, they could pull you far enough that some of these little ones do not get back up. These are called the temptations of this world. Not all little children who believe in Jesus actually continue to believe in Jesus. Not all who once were called children of God in a human perspective, how we can potentially understand them without seeing their hearts, actually continue. Some grow up. Some get paychecks. Some get titles. Some become adults in this world. See, every child in the church kind of looks like a Christian until they get a driver's license. And then you wonder, is my child saved? Because they have freedom. They're not a child anymore. Perhaps they were never a child in their heart in the first place. Everybody in the church looks like a Christian until they go to college. You see, some people grow up and they never enter the kingdom of God for it. They never humble themselves before the Lord. This petty pecking order of our worldly status is actually the deception that Jesus warns will lead to our inevitable destruction. So think of the image he gives. He says you should be like little children, then he changes it entirely and starts talking about sheep. Don't you know, Jesus says, what do you think if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them strays away, doesn't fall, is not gone, is not lost entirely, but definitely moves from the herd and is not found at the moment. This one that gets away. He leaves the 99 in search of the one that he might find it. And when he finds it, he rejoices with a greater joy than he had even when he considered the 99 that he already possessed. See, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's better? Who's wiser? Who cares? Are you going to die and go to hell? Or are you going to live with the glory of God and have him be your shepherd and your comfort and your guide. Surely in a herd of sheep, some are stronger, some are uh, better, some have whiter coats, produce more fur, maybe more valuable to the shepherd. The one that was lost, well, what, the one that was lost, let's ask, what kind of one was lost? Was it one of the greater sheep that I had that was lost? Doesn't matter. It was one of his sheep, you see. Don't ask who is the greatest. The whole point is, to be in the presence of God forever. To have life everlasting. Therefore, we all are just simply his sheep. And therefore, if one falls away, the whole flock hurts. That is, my job is titled pastor. We are his sheep. Right? If people fall away, particularly even from this church, and not because of any other reason except the desires of their heart leading to the world, it is the greatest travesty in the world. It should keep me up at night. It should make all of us take on this responsibility of shepherding one another to glory. Because the warning is, that is not how all the sheep finish. The point of losing a sheep is that it cannot be lost long. It cannot be too long before I don't see you, before I have to call you. Because sheep in the wilderness are either dead by wolves or taken by thieves. Sheep are foolish, and they need protection. In fact, 
We're just like children. And this is who we are. The point being, as we come to an end, is this powerful image that Jesus gives, which is a significant warning. The need to know that our sins, like the wind, carry us away. I'm always taken back by the fact that when you watch children play, it's like absolute chaos. Because their mind, this world is new and exciting and everything is awesome. So this is just a shout out for our nursery volunteers. Praise God for nursery volunteers. Because when they get back there in the nursery and that toy's there, Yes, that toy's amazing for a whole five seconds, and then that toy's amazing for another five seconds, and then look at this, and oh my gosh, is that a light switch? Right, that, that's the beauty of, see, it's nuts. It's beautiful. But see, what is our heart? We are children. We move from one idol to the next idol. This is amazing. I got this thing. Oh, look how shiny that is. Look at this new hobby I have. Look at this new promotion I got. Look, if I give my time here and not over here, I could move over here and advance this way. Do you see how we are children? Do you see how we are sheep? Our iniquities, like the wind, drive us away. Our attention. We only have one. You have one thing to do in this life. You have literally one thing. People want to say, oh, life's complicated. I need an organizer. Here's your organizer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Now you try to do that for the next 24 hours and you tell me you're not a child. Our hearts are prone to so many other things. And so the warning the warning of this with Jesus. If your hands and feet are moving everywhere like a child, make sure they don't fall into sin. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled and lame than with two hands to be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, take it out. It's better for you Tends her life with one eye, then with two eyes go into hellfire, the hell of fire. How a remarkable way to answer a question when they're just simply saying, Jesus, how's the totem pole work? How's the Ponzi scheme work? Who can be the greatest in the kingdom? And he's like, let me tell you about hell. <laughs> like, let me reorient you to the, the foolish question you're asking. The warning of hell Gehenna here in the Greek is a garbage heap in which everything that cannot enter the holy city of God must be purged and burned. That is, there is a garbage heap outside the celestial city where all filth and murder and sexual exploitation and corruption and lust and anger and envy and, James says, particularly the tongue is set on fire by hell. Every word you've ever said and all the incorporated bodies that have ever committed these crimes throughout the history of humanity will go there so that heaven can be heaven and all corruption can be corruption. And if you think in these categories... Hell is the ultimate leveling doctrine. 
I don't care who's the greatest. I don't care who's the least. For we all have escaped God's just wrath. And I am happy to be a servant in the palace of God and to be a slave in the kingdom of heaven. Say, without explanation, imagine next week people take this verse seriously. And we find a few eye patches in the church or people walking in with crutches. And say, well, let me explain. But see, the way you would explain is not by downplaying the verse. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone in Scripture. I would be deceiving you if I did anything less in downplaying his words. The reason it would not be appropriate to find an eye patch on you tomorrow because you looked at that woman is not because that wouldn't be an extreme enough response to your sin. That's the whole point of why Jesus is saying what he said. There would be an appropriate response. The only problem is, it just wouldn't be extreme enough. So it's pointless to do it. It's not the eye. It's not the hand or the foot. It's you. It's what you're doing with everything he's given you. Take all your hands and feet away and your eyes. It's the desire of the heart. It's not that your hand needs to be removed. It's not that your eye needs to be removed. It's that you must die. You justly deserve to die because of God's justice and righteousness. The only reason there is a man on a cross both his eyes, with both his feet pierced, both his hands pierced, stabbed right through to the center and bleeding out and breathing his last is particularly because of this hellfire. And you would say, well, I don't believe. I can't imagine the doctrine of hell in Scripture. Really? Are you sure it's that hard to conceive of that all the natural evils we experience in this world are only types and images of the age to come of evils that persist? Is it really that hard to imagine that there would be this reality of evil being dealt with in a domain of darkness and wrong? Because when I look at the world, I find a world that God presently holds and sustains in which there is a thing called disease and death, in which there is a thing called necrotizing fasciitis. There's a story I heard of a man who had to travel far for a job in which he was cleaning things in a park. And he stepped on a thorn. It was a very long thorn that went through the bottom of his boot. And he felt a burn, most likely, and had an infection in his foot. Lasted for a few hours. Took some medication, perhaps. But the next few more hours, that thing went right up his leg. No medication was stopping it. And he would surely die because the disease travels through the fascia below the muscle. It's almost like a highway to the rest of your body. 
They cut off his leg within an hour or two to save his life. Now, that's the present world we live in. Do you think Jesus' warning does not ring all the more true when he speaks about the hell to come? For a man died on the cross for you. We worship Jesus Christ who gave his life for you. He died for you because you deserve to die. There is a world with disease and amputation and death because of this sin. He went into the world of disease and amputation and death because of your sin. Therefore, die to yourself. The amputation of him is to humble yourself, find your temptations, and cut them off. For Jesus Christ was cut off for you to give you a new heart and a new mind that you would kill the old man and live to the new man, kill all sin and live to righteousness. He's given you power by his resurrection in the spirit that there is no need to amputate. There is only a need to cut your soul open before the Lord in prayer and draw near to him as a humble child. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dear Father God, we ask that we would behold the glory of your Son on that cross for us. Lord, we understand particularly that we have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer we who live, but the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, we are your children and we give you our lives. You have caused us to pray And therefore we pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from every evil and give us the pure vision of a single focus to lay hold of Jesus with all our heart. Lord, give us this grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.